Do you think that you could turn in your own father to the police? What if I told you that you had found out that he had abused children? Could you then? Or would it make a difference if one of those children was your own sister and others were children at the church where your father was the preacher? That's the dilemma that today's guest faced, and it changed the course of his life. I'm so glad you've joined me for another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. We're going to investigate another captivating true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. I believe that if you're listening, you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI, not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. This is season four, episode 35. Our book this week is The Devil Inside, and our guest is its author, Pastor Jimmy Hinton. Everyone wants a father they can look up to, a father who shows them love and teaches them right from wrong. Jimmy Hinton had a dad like that. He also had a dad who molested dozens of children. It's hard to imagine one man that had both of these sides to him. Today, Jimmy consults with churches who are dealing with leaders who have done something like what his father did. Many will say, but you don't know how much good this man has done for the church. I love the way Jimmy responds to that. He says, and you don't know how much evil he's done either. Growing up, Jimmy loved his dad and admired the work that he did for the church, for God. He was shocked when his parents separated after 30 years of marriage. It wasn't because his mother found out about all of the abuses that his father John had committed. John was caught working with a company that stole millions from elderly people people who had trusted John. After the separation, John had nowhere to live, so Jimmy and his wife took him in. This was supposed to be a short-term situation, but John really struggled to get his life straightened out. When he suggested to some of his family that he would really enjoy being a male nanny, they thought it was odd, but not creepy. They didn't see that as being a job that a predator might be attracted to. That would only be obvious in retrospect. Life changed forever for Jimmy in July of 2011. His youngest sister disclosed to him that their father had molested her when she was younger. That was only the beginning of the horrific revelations to come. There were other family members, children from the church that John had pastored, children of Jimmy's friends. Jimmy didn't know it yet, but a large number of pedophiles target churches and their people because we can be naive about the dangers that these people can pose. They walk among us because they do not think we will catch them. And they believe that even if we do, that we'll just want to forgive them and cover up the abuse. But Jimmy couldn't do that. With his mother, Jimmy went to the police and reported what John had done. He says that as weird as this sounds, it really felt like a betrayal of sorts. It was surreal to think that someone he had loved and admired so much could have this hidden dark side. When the police spoke to John, the nightmare got worse. There were so many victims. John wasn't arrested right away, and Jimmy wisely held on to the secret until his father was in custody. With incredible foresight and concern for the well-being of the victims, he didn't want anybody who didn't know the depth of the situation to be publicly defending his father. And he wanted to be the one to tell the rest of his siblings and the parents of the victims who had been identified. Then once his father was in custody, He had to tell his church. 
I can't even begin to imagine how hard that all must have been. In his book, Jimmy said that he wished that he had known how common abuse is in the church. He wished he'd been taught how to respond. If you're a leader in your church, I urge you to get this book. I've put a link in the show notes so you can find it very easily. And I want to read a quote directly from the book that I think is such a clear call to action that we can no longer ignore. Our kids can't afford for us to sit idly by, hoping someone else will step up to the plate to protect them. Idleness hasn't worked for generations, and it's not working now. So now is the time for Christians to act. The church's record on abuse should embarrass us. When secular researchers rightly name the church as the most dangerous place for children, it ought to spark a fight inside every one of us. I hope that spoke to you the way it did to me. And now we're going to hear more incredible insights from Jimmy himself. Jimmy, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And this is a very difficult topic to discuss, but you were willing to take this difficult topic that it's really hard to talk about even in the abstract, let alone from personal experience. So what made you want to write this book? Yeah, what really drove me was um, having discovered that my dad uh, was a pedophile and then reporting him. I was very, very haunted by the fact that we all missed it. I mean, for our entire lives, he had been abusing children from the time he was 14 years old by his own admission and very consistently for decades. And then there also was abuse in our own home where he abused sisters of mine. And it really, really bothered me that we didn't see it. And so for me, being able to still communicate with my dad and being able to, to get information from him, you know, find out not necessarily why he did it, but how he did it. To me, that was a more important question because, right, everybody wants to know why. And they ask it in this form. Was your dad ever abused or whoever the abuser was? Were they ever abused as a child? For me, that's really irrelevant because we could spend a lifetime trying to figure out why they did it. And still not get a clear answer. So for me, what really drove me was finding out how abusers do what they do and how they get away with it and how they view us, you know, as the parents, as caretakers, as church members, church leaders, whatever we are. How does the abuser view us and how do they know for a fact that they're going to get away with it? Because they know it's illegal. They know it's immoral. They know it's unethical. And they do it anyway. And they don't just do it. They do it over and over and over and over again. So that's really what drove me to write this book. You know, the the years of research and communications with my dad, communications with victims. Once I started to get a, a pretty clear understanding of the consistency that abusers have, I thought I need to write this down and, and put it on paper. And that's something I think that churches don't want to admit, that not only can this happen in their church, It often does, and we miss it. Right. Because you make the point that pastors just aren't trained for that sort of stuff. Most pastoral training is very heavy on lecturing, teaching how to present your sermon, teaching how to put your sermon together, but they don't give what you called street smarts. And so that makes it harder for them to spot if they have an abuser in their congregation or on their staff. Right. So what can we do, just a regular person sitting out in the pew, what can we do to help raise awareness in our churches about that? 
I think the biggest thing is it starts with individuals. So many people are are very hardwired to think that everything needs to go through church leadership. And, and my question to that is, how does that work out for us? And I'm a church leader myself. And, and I say, if somebody sees a way to keep other people safe, uh, you don't need my permission. You don't need my approval. And if you have leadership who stops you from trying to do what's right, and who stops you as a as a lay church member from trying to protect the most vulnerable and innocent in our congregations, we've got a problem with those leaders. And so I, you know, I tell people when I consult with churches, when I do trainings, you don't need permission to keep kids safe. You don't need permission to look out for really weird behavior and these behavioral patterns where you have grown men inviting little kids over for sleepovers at their house. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's just bizarre. Yeah. And we have a lot more power than we think we do to stand up to people who are who are behaving badly. So I would say it starts with educating yourself, number one. And number two, communicating with other people, especially other parents, because it's the parents of young children in churches that have a vested interest in keeping children safe. Often yes. you have church leaders who, you know, you have elders, you have deacons, you have church leaders that their kids are all, they're grown and out of the house. And so they might try to empathize, they might try to understand, but ultimately they don't have a vested interest themselves in in keeping children safe. So it becomes one of those items that that gets put on the stack that, you know, we'll look at this later kind of thing. It, it really starts with educating yourself. And just being proactive, you know, even if even if church leaders don't want to put a policy in place, they don't want to pay for a training or whatever, that doesn't mean you just wash your hands of it and say, well, there's nothing else I can do. You know, there's plenty that we can do as parents, as lay members. We just have to communicate with each other and make it happen. That is a great encouragement. I love that. And I hope everybody remembers that. That is a key takeaway from today's episode. When I was reading your book, um, whenever I read a book for the podcast, I always highlight the parts that I think are important or I underline them and I write little notes in the margin to remind myself of questions I want to ask. And as I was reading your book and I read about your reaction when one of your sisters came to you and disclosed that your father had sexually abused her, I drew a heart in the margin because you said, I believe you. What would you say to people who had disclosed abuse, especially by a leader or a volunteer or someone in the church, and they weren't believed? Don't give up. Find somebody who believes you. And and I hate that victims have to be proactive to try to find somebody who believes them. Like that just sounds so counterintuitive to protection and care and and grace and mercy and all those things. It's just, it's it's counterproductive and counterintuitive to have to seek out somebody who believes you. But I would suggest they keep looking because there are people who will listen to them and there are people who will believe them. And it's a shame that we have people who their first instinct is, is to say, well, you probably were mistaken or how dare you bring this up? Or do you realize that what you're saying is implicating what potentially could be an innocent person and you could destroy their lives. Like those are the kinds of responses that victims often hear. And um, I think we need a whole lot more education on how to respond whenever there's an allegation of abuse that comes to people. But our first instinct ought to be, I believe you. I love that you brought up how many victims hear, well, you could ruin someone's life if this is a false allegation. Because 
I know you've done a ton of research in this area. So let me know if the research I've done jives with what you know. Studies that I've read, the incidence of false reporting is around 2%. I've seen some that are a little bit higher, but most of them are right around that 2% mark. Correct. And you have to ask yourself too, what what does this person have to gain by making this up? Like if you think about framing somebody, I could think of 400 different ways to frame somebody for something that's so much easier, you know? It's like it just makes no sense to make this up. And it does happen. I mean, it, it's exceptionally rare. But I could think of so many different ways to try to frame somebody or to try to ruin somebody's reputation other than this. And so you right. have to ask that question. What what do they have to gain by making this up? Well, especially kids. Right. You know, they they don't have the life experience. They don't have the mature brain function to think through everything they would need to have a credible story. Right. And they're going to know that most people are not going to believe them. Right. So, yeah, like you said, why would you pick this particular type of allegation? Yeah, it, it seems very strange to me that somebody would go to that that length, one, to make it up, but two, to hold on to that story, right? Because if you're making something up of that degree, something that egregious, eventually you're going to give up. You know, <laughs> if you really are making it up, there's going to come a point, and we see this in the news all the time with different things. There was the the lady who... She alleged that there was, you know, she saw this little toddler walking on the side of the road and, yes. you know, they she was went abducted. back and they reviewed footage, video footage and the 911 tapes. And, you know, they analyzed it and it took about two days for her to recant her story and be like, all right, you have me. You know, I made it up for whatever reason she made that up. It doesn't take long to recant those stories when you when you truly are making them up. This is just something that when you have somebody who holds on to that story and they refuse to let go, there's a reason for that. Yeah, I always tell people, look at Watergate. You're talking about highly educated, well-placed, with a lot of powerful friends, all these people. If anybody ought to be able to hold a story together, you'd think it would have been them. And it fell apart just about as fast as the lady from South Carolina story did. Sure. So expecting a child to be able to do what these adults can't manage to do is ludicrous. Right. I want to pivot a little bit here uh, to another point that I thought was so spot on in your book. We're used to hearing stories about grooming, grooming behavior Mm -hmm. um, and what that leads to. I love that you have a different take on what we should call it. So tell me about that and tell me why. Yeah, so I prefer to use the term testing instead of grooming because and, and I understand the point that 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 people are trying to make when they say, well, they groom somebody. You know, often if you look at the definitions of grooming, it's this long process and it takes a long time. You you establish trust. You know, they're working really hard to look like they're trustworthy. Uh, they kind of worm their way into the home. And it's like this building process over a period of months or even years. And my experience is it very rarely works that way. I mean, what happens is incredibly quick. They don't have to establish authority because they already have it. They already mm-hmm. have trust. They already show kindness. They show courtesy. And, and so they don't have to take all this time to, to build up to that. My dad explained it in, in a series of letters from prison. And he said, 
what I do, and he didn't call it testing. It just as as I was hearing him describe this, I was like, oh my goodness, he's testing not only his victims, but he's matching them to the right parents. We often talk about, you know, like trainings that we have on, on abuse. We'll talk about this grooming process and how they find vulnerable children that, you know, probably came from a broken home. Parents are divorced or negligent or whatever. And they focus on those vulnerable kids and then they start grooming them. They become this superhero wearing a cape kind of thing. And I'm like, no, they target anybody and everybody. It doesn't matter whether they have loving parents or not. They find vulnerabilities. They first test the child, but then they have to match the right child to the right parent. And they have to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that that parent is going to be none the wiser. And so how do they do that? You know, because if they just start targeting vulnerable children, they're going to get caught. And abusers don't get caught. And my dad talked about it. Like he talked about this big, long process, not long process. It's actually really quick, but mostly it's a combination of physical touch, which is benign at first, you know, touch on the shoulder. And they'll do that in front of the parents intentionally. And they'll hold a conversation and as they're having a conversation, as the abusers having a conversation with the parents, they're intentionally messing with their spotlight of attention. And they'll say certain things to see if they can hold eye contact with the parent as they're touching on the shoulder. And that touch quickly moves and, you know, it might be a graze across the breast or it might, you know, it might move to a hand on the hip. And this happens really quickly. My dad talked about this process where we have to test both the child and the parent to see how the child responds. Do they squirm and try to get away or... Are they really not bothered by it? And then the parents or caretakers, are they bothered by it or did they notice it? And once they realize that they've they've kind of passed that first set of tests, then there's a, a pretty quick progression from there. And they still do it in front of people. And so that's why I really specialize in abuse in plain sight. You know, think Larry Nasser. Yes. Larry Nasser not only was not bothered by parents being in the room as he was abusing his victims, but one of the parents wrote an opinion piece and she said, I thought, is he really doing what I think he's doing? So she asked to go stand beside Larry Nasser. And he was like, yeah, sure. Come on up. And so he invited her to stand beside her and he continued to, to abuse his victim. He didn't groom his victims. He didn't groom the parents. He didn't take all these months and years to build all this trust. He just automatically had it. Because he's a person in power. He's a person who people automatically respect doctors, typically, normally. And so they walked into the office and all he had to do was a, a quick series of testing and find out which parents are, are not going to see what he's doing and which parents will. And if you think about it too, like I, I think I talked about this in the book too, magicians do the same thing. They don't groom their audience, right? Right. And think of what yeah. all they do in front of these people. I mean, look at the sleight of hand, look at the the just constant manipulation from the time they walk up on stage. And abusers use a lot of those same techniques, right? They know how to talk. They intuitively know how to use patter to kind of misdirect people. They know how to touch people in all the right places. Uh, they know how to constantly test them and do it quickly. So I prefer the term testing over grooming because it's just more accurate. Not that grooming doesn't happen, but the majority of abusers are using testing techniques where they can quickly, and I mean quickly, test a victim or a potential victim, find out if that person is vulnerable. And then what they have to do is match that person to parents who are also vulnerable. I mean, we all have vulnerabilities. All right. 
And abusers intuitively know how to test it, test us, and then go in and do their thing. They know the end goal. They know what they're going to do. It's just how are they going to get there? Just like a magician. If people are in the audience and somebody starts kind of catching on a little bit to what they're doing, they don't freak out and go, oh my goodness, I need to stop the show, right? They just have 20 different avenues where they can still get to the end goal. They still know the trick that they're going to do. They'll just switch tactics a little bit and still get to the end goal. Here's something I think people really need to hear, to take in, and to change some behaviors based on what I'm getting ready to say. Some of the most vulnerable kids are going to be the ones who have been overprotected and whose parents will trust anybody with a title. Yes, absolutely. And we've been conditioned to think that way in churches, especially. Like this is the one place where for one or two hours out of the week, we can come to this place of sanctuary where we're safe from those people out there. And, and abusers know this. And so that's a prime place. And all the research shows it. Churches are primed for abuse because of the culture that we've created in the churches. And I saw on one of your blog posts that you quoted Dr. Anna Salter, mm-hmm. who I, I really like her work. And she has written that when she has gone into prison and she has talked to people who have committed these heinous felonies and others, she asked if they had a preferred type victim. And a vast majority of them said, yes, people of faith. Yeah. Because not only are they naive and trusting, but if they do catch me, all they want to do is forgive me. Yeah, that's exactly right. We see it time and time and time again. I just had a, a phone conversation this week with a pastor who is really doing the right thing. He heard of a, a credible allegation about sexual abuse of somebody who's now an adult, but was a minor when the abuse happened by another pastor who he knows. And so he did all the right things. He contacted all the previous churches. He talked to leaders. Some of those leaders are good friends of his. And you know what the response was? He had written letters from multiple victims, because there were more who came forward. And they said, yeah, I was abused by this man. None of the victims had spoken to each other. All of their stories sounded eerily similar. And those those leaders at the other churches said, we don't want to hear it. We don't want to read the letters. Because even if this is true, God's forgiveness will cover him. It's insanity. It is literal insanity. And yes, God can forgive any of us any sin we would ever commit. However, that is a forgiveness for salvation. That does not mean you get to do exactly the same thing that you were doing before. That's right. Yeah, it's not a get out of jail free card. You know? And if you look at the prerequisites for forgiveness. And that's pretty easy to fake. I mean, I'm just going to throw that. Sure. I'm not saying that everybody that repents is faking it. But as someone who's a PI and I have to talk to all kinds of different people and convince them that they need to talk to me, I know how to say what that person needs to hear. Absolutely. And predators, please don't think that I'm calling myself a predator, but predators have that skill. Yes. They can suss out what you need to hear to feel comfortable with them. And then that's just what they're going to tell you, true or not true. And most of it is not true. Absolutely. Well, I love this passage. There's a passage in Acts, and we don't talk about this, right? I I have never once heard a lesson or a sermon, this type of forgiveness, where something is 
is required of us, something is 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 owed. Like we think of repentance as, oh my goodness, they said they're sorry, they cried, they were sorrowful. I hear things like this all the time for sex offenders who have gone to prison. They're like, well, they did their time. Now that they're out, they they kind of learned their lesson and well, they're sorry they got caught. Yeah, that's right. So Paul Paul says this when uh, when he goes before King Agrippa in Acts twenty six. He said, therefore, O Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout all the region of Judea, and also the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. And here's the key part, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So when church leaders are really quick to say, oh my goodness, this, you know, we, yes, we have this known abuser in the church. We haven't told the congregation. We don't plan on telling the congregation, but privately he said that he's repented and, you know, he was really remorseful. My response, it's two words, prove it. Why would you take somebody who's a pathological liar, who not only thought these thoughts of children, which in itself, if you think of, you know, just stop for a second and think of how twisted you have to be to think those thoughts of children anyway, but they didn't just think it. They did it. They went through with it. They actually did it over and over and over again. You're going to take their word that they've repented? From a very practical standpoint, and I'm not trying to give anybody legal advice. This is just food for thought. But if you have a known danger in your congregation and you fail to warn people and then something happens, your ministry is going to get destroyed, not only reputationally, but with lawsuits. That's right. Your liability shoots through the roof. I wonder how many churches are out there who don't realize that they're uninsurable mm-hmm. because they've not they've not informed their insurance company. You know, it's so weird because when you speak keeping children safe, that that language doesn't really resonate with church leaders in my experience. In over 10 years of doing this, that kind of language doesn't resonate with the vast majority of church leaders. However, When you say, have you contacted your insurance company and let them know that you have a known sex offender in your congregation, all of a sudden they start getting nervous and they're like, what do you mean? Why would we tell our insurance company? I'm like, are you serious? You think you don't have a ticking time bomb in your church and you're Mm going to keep that from your insurance company? Do you realize what your liability is right now? And all of a sudden they start asking questions and they're like, well, I don't think we need to contact our insurance. And I'm like, that's fine. I don't mind doing it for you. And, oh, I love that. They get I'd make so, a job out of it. Oh my goodness. They get so nervous and they're like, you can't do that. And I'm like, you can't hide a sex offender in your church and think that's okay. Wow. And how sad. And, you know, I don't want to sound judgmental, but at the same time, speaking the truth, if you're a leader and you're listening to this, that's a moral failing. I'm sorry. And I'm trying to say this in love, but that's a moral failing. And I hope, I hope that you'll pray about that and you'll, you'll ask God what he wants you to do and then you'll do it. Well, there's another component to that too, that we don't really talk about enough. And that's that, and I'm talking for registered sex offenders, people who spent time in prison, they actually were tried, convicted and spent time in prison. When they get out, a lot of these people are on, on a permanent registry for the rest of their lives. There's a reason for that. It's a public registry, especially a tier three sex offender. This just happened with my wife a few weeks ago. She's a director of a daycare, a large daycare center here in town. 
She had a state trooper buzz the door. He came in. He had a poster. And he said, we have a tier three sex offender who just moved in within a one mile radius of of your building. And by law, we have to knock on all the doors and notify people. And so here's the poster. Here's his information. And I'm like, I I don't understand why churches think they're above the law. And they go out of their way to hide these public registries from the congregation. And they're like, oh, but, you know, they're so ashamed of what they did. And I don't care. I'm ashamed of things that I did too. Yeah. <laughs> Join the club. There are a lot of things that I'm ashamed of that I've done. That doesn't mean that you get to hide those things. And and especially when you're on a public registry that's put out there for a very specific reason. I want to add a caveat here. Don't feel like you're safe just because a trooper has not knocked on your door. Because not every jurisdiction takes that maybe as seriously as they should or they're understaffed, or they're whatever. I'm yeah. not going to make excuses for them. But just because law enforcement hasn't notified you, that doesn't mean the problem doesn't exist where you are. Right. So do your own due diligence. You can get on the internet. You can do the searches. You can find who is in your area. And you know, you're not going to be able to track down everything. You're not going to know who's maybe picking children up, but you have to do your part. You have to do your due diligence. Absolutely. And you wrote something that I see as a very strong call to action. When you said idleness hasn't worked for generations and it's not working now. So for everybody that's listening, Again, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but tell us what we can do to help stop the abuse and to help stop the silencing of victims. There are a couple of things we can do, and and I think about it this way. I use examples of what people do that are not child abuse. And and for whatever reason, those things really resonate with us. And we're like, oh my goodness. You know, we talked before we started recording, people breaking into to your neighborhood. You know, somebody who's breaking into cars and stealing things and doing destruction. We all get that. None of us would sit by and, you know, sit in a rocking chair on our porch, watch it and be like, oh, but God's grace. Like none of us would do that. We understand that with physical possessions. And another thing came to mind, too. You remember the guy, this it's happened a couple of times, but the guy who stole a tank, like a big heavy duty army tank. Yes. And this guy, I think it was out in California. And he like reinforced the hatch on the top. And he just went on this like crazy crusade. And he's going out and he's mowing everything over, like light poles, cars. He's splitting motorhomes in half. Like this guy's just destroying everything in his path. You have options when you when you see something like that. When you see this path of destruction, you can either attempt to stop it. In that case, wouldn't be a really good idea because your average person isn't going to be able to stop a tank. Right. Um, option two is to pick up the phone and call the police. Be like, we have this maniac who's causing all of this destruction and he's not stopping. And then you have option number three. If he makes his way into your neighborhood and you see this tank coming down the street, run. Get out of harm's way. Grab your children. Don't let your children mm-hmm. keep playing in the yard and be like, well, you know, God will take care of this person and will soften his heart. And, you know, because that's what love and forgiveness is about. You know, you grab your kids and as Paul puts it, avoid such people. And in Second Timothy chapter three, he's talking about harmful, destructive, deceitful people. And Paul's very clear. And by the way, these are people who are 
proclaimed Christians, Paul says, avoid such people. You know, they're warped, they're twisted. Paul says in verse 13 of 2 Timothy 3, they go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's that self-deception that all abusers have. They all have the self-deception and a salter talks about it. Oh my goodness, I was, I was teaching this child about love. That's mm-hmm. self-deception. They know full well that they're not teaching that child about love, but they self-deceive themselves in order to justify what they're doing. So you can either try to stop it to the best of your ability. You can and you should call the police like we did in, in, in our case. Yes. And you avoid those people. You know, my dad was trying to come to church. He didn't know that it was mom and I who had reported him. And after the police came knocking on his door, he called me up and he was talking about coming to church. I said, you step foot over that threshold, I will physically and violently remove you. Don't you dare step foot inside of that church building. And then he backed down. But had I not said that, he would have showed up to church where, by the way, he had victims. Well, I I could go on and on for hours with you on this topic. And I so, so appreciate your willingness to share not just your personal story, but you've made this a mission of yours and you've done your homework and you've helped everywhere you possibly could. So I want people to be able to connect with you and your work. What is the best way for people to do that? Yeah, best and easiest way is just my website. It's just my name, jimmyhinton.org. I have blogs. We have our podcast, which we just kind of wrapped up. Uh, We did over five years of of podcasting, my mom and I. We kind of moved on to to a new season in life, but those are still hosted on my website. And just this week, I released a series of training videos, online training videos. So those are all available on my website. Or you can go to Facebook. It's Jimmy Hinton Author. And uh, then on Twitter, you can find me. All right. And I will put links to all that in the show notes. So it's very easy for everybody to find because this is a problem that is not going to fix itself. We've got to step up and do our part, each one of us. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. This has been, I think, both challenging and encouraging. And I appreciate that so much. You're welcome. Thanks again for having me. You're very welcome. Take care. Most of us are probably familiar with the first verse of Psalm 89 from the old hymn, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. I will spare you and I will not sing it now for you, but I've put a link to a video of a bunch of cute kids singing it so you can remember who we are trying to protect with this episode. I want to focus in on verse 14, and it seems only right to read it from the International Children's Bible Translation. Your kingdom is built on what is right and fair. Love and truth are in all you do. Of course, this is talking about God. But how can we, as the church, tell others about the wonders of God's kingdom if we don't do what is right and fair? It's not right to cover for people who abuse children or anyone else. Yet we've seen it happen time and again. And you can find all the examples you need if you just Google abuse in the Catholic Church, abuse in Southern Baptist churches, And it's happening in other denominations. It's not just them. But those are the two that have probably gotten the most media attention. It is not fair to our flock to let them think that they're safe if we aren't doing all we can to make that so. But it doesn't have to be that way. I know that some of you listening are in churches that are getting it right. 
And I want to hear what you're doing that is so effective. And I also know that some of you are in churches that are not placing as much importance on the safety of our children and other vulnerable individuals as we should. I want to hear from you too. I want to be able to help. Send me an email at lori, L-O-R-I, at theunlovelytruth.com or message me on social media. I love it when people are willing to have those hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.